I think when I stand before God, I will worry less about money I wasted on people that were not worth it. And I will worry more about what I could have given but kept for myself. I really think that's true. I really think this is true. And I think what happens in our culture today is we have seen so much wasted philanthropy and generosity that we have started to pull it back for ourselves, not realizing that that is the tendency we have to fight from the beginning. So if we have to err, we have to err in the other direction. Well, let's have an altar call. I, uh, I grew up thinking that generosity was a list of rules. I was told when I was a child that you should tithe, and so I didn't want to, but I did. And then I was told after that that after you tithe, you should give money to other people. Didn't want to, but I did. And then I was told that if I did this, uh, my heart would follow my giving. You know, where your treasure is or your heart will be also... And I found just after a number of years that this doesn't work. It, generosity is not just a practice or a habit. It's an economy. Generosity is a way of seeing the world. So when we talk about the remnant being generous people, as you just read this morning, with aliens and with the poor and with people that are vulnerable and those that are victims of some tragic circumstance right now. He's not calling us simply to a new set of practices. Of course he is. But he's calling us into an entirely new economy. So it's not that people uh, who love God don't have stuff. We have lots of stuff. It's that we have a different relationship with our stuff and that's what moves us into the margins. Now let me go back to the beginning, now that you've heard the end. Let me explain the statement. When I met her for the first time, Ruby was about 80 years old and she was dying. We had just moved to the church in uh, Lakeport. And on the first Sunday that we were there, I had preached the sermon only one service in that day. Oh, man, it was amazing. I had tons of energy afterwards. And before I could get to the back and greet everybody there, the phone had rung and someone had said, Ruby had been taken to the hospital. Would I please come to see her? So within an hour, I greeted everybody and told them goodbye, and then I got in my car, drove to the hospital, and when I saw her, she said, yeah, she felt awful that day, and she knew something was wrong, but she didn't know what. Really nice to meet you, Pastor. She was a strong-willed, feisty, old English woman, real short and tiny. She said, I'll know more by the end of the week, and when the end of the week came, they'd done multiple tests and discovered that Ruby had stage 4 cancer it was fully developed in the abdominal area, and surgery wasn't an option. Would she try treatment? I got on to the elevator with the doctor, uh, and on the way up to the elevator room, the doctor said to me, um, I don't want to tell her. I want you to tell her. <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm 28. I have not had a residency program. 
I don't know how to do this. She said, I don't care. You figure something out. I can't do this. I'll answer questions, but I won't tell her. And so I got up in her room. I figured out a way to graciously tell her that she was in a very serious state. She only had one option, and it was treatment, and that probably was not real optimistic, but it was still open to her, and what would she like to do? She asked a series of questions, and by the end of that time, she decided she would not pursue treatment. Dr. Anwar, her OBGYN, left the room, and in came her longtime friend, Dorothy, who had something like a patron-client relationship with her. Dorothy was younger, drove her around, took care of stuff around her house, but Dorothy was poorer than church mice. She had absolutely nothing. I'd been to the Hawks' home many, many times. And as I stood at the end of Ruby's bed and watched this exchange with Dorothy, where Ruby tried to tell Dorothy that she would not be here for long, it would probably be a couple months at most, she looked at me and said, Pastor, would you hand me my purse? I need something. And when I did that, she reached into her purse, and while she was fumbling for it, she grabbed a $20 bill, and she said, Here, Dorothy, I won't need this anymore. And she handed it to her. And then she went into her purse and she found another one. And she handed it to her. And by this time, she found something else. And she pulled it out and handed Oh, here's a little leather purse that I keep my money in. You can have this too. And by this time, I kind of moved over to the window. So I'd, it seemed to me that this was a holy moment. Something was happening here. And part of me wanted to just kind of revere the moment. And part of me wanted to just get in line. <laughs> I thought, man, if you're in the given kind, oh man. But I stood at the distance and I watched her empty the contents of her purse, not everything, but a lot of the things, and give them to Dorothy, who really didn't know how to take them at the time. She was sad she was losing her friend, but she was ever so desperate. After that conversation was over, we prayed, I left. In the next couple of weeks, I had many conversations with Ruby, all in the hospital. She never went back home. And in those conversations, she discovered that I loved books. And she said, you know, my husband was a printer, and he used to print books, and I used to buy books, and I love books too. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to my house. Even though I'm not there, they'll let you in and walk through my house and find any book you want and help yourself to it. I thought, this is amazing, man. This is like Christmas time. And so they took me to Ruby's house, and they opened the door, and they said, when you're done, just lock up, we'll leave. And I stood in the front of the house. It was a tiny, maybe 1,000-square-foot home, single story, lived over by the lake. I looked at a living room that was chocked full of stuff. Ruby was a hoarder. There was a narrow path about maybe three feet wide that went from the front door in a winding way out to the kitchen and then a path from the kitchen into the tiny bedroom in the corner. But literally everything else in that house was stocked full of stuff. Ruby was having a soul shift. She had spent her entire life accumulating stuff and now was at the end of her life and was beginning to see that that really wasn't going to do anything for her anymore. In fact, she didn't even need it anymore. So she was starting to unload it and she was actually targeting it and giving it to the people that she knew needed it the most. Something deeper was happening in Ruby's life. I began to think about that. I remember getting in my car and trying to process everything that I'd seen as I came away from that house of hers. How does someone with that much stuff accumulated over life start to unload their purse just randomly into the hands of one person? 
I couldn't make sense of it. Over the time, I've begun to appreciate Ruby's story, and it's shaped my reading of Scripture in a lot of ways, at least two. One of those is that I have a new and a profound respect for the influence that a person's culture has on the way they view possessions. I've come to appreciate that it is not really sermons or books or cliches or bumper stickers or even prayers at an altar that most shape a person's view of possessions. It is culture. Ruby grew up in the Great Depression. And the Great Depression, if it didn't kill you, changed the way that you see possessions. She survived the Great Depression with a narrative like this. You are on your own. The system cannot be trusted. The markets have failed you. Everyone else can't help you. You are on your own. Your life will be what you make it. So you must take hold of yourself and educate yourself and become ambitious and work hard because there was no one out there looking out for you. They can't. You are on your own. Therefore, what you get is yours because you worked for it. You earned it. You were clever enough, ambitious enough, smart enough. And now you have what you need. But you can never be sure because anything can happen. And when it does, you'd better be prepared. So you better stock up with as much stuff as you can for that day when something happens you'll know that you'll have enough. So the more you have, the better you are. I am not minimizing Ruby. She learned from her culture like we learned from ours. And what she learned in that time of her life was a mindset of need. It says you will never have enough because you can't decide what's going to happen. There's too many things that you can't control. It's a big world out there and you better be prepared. It's a culture of need. The other thing that I got from those days with Ruby was hope. I got hope that you could actually unlearn that stuff in this lifetime. Because if I read my Bible right, Ruby was not created by God in order to pull stuff in. She was created by God to live on what God provided, and that was enough. And then she was created to let go of the rest. But somewhere along the way, that got twisted the circumstances, the times, the culture took over and she just became a product of her culture. But now, within the last month of her life, she was beginning to unlearn it. There was hope. I remember asking myself many times, 
what if I could, what if I could get there before I died? What if I did not have to wait to that last month of my life to finally figure out the way heaven views my possessions? What if my possessions were not simply a matter of just giving, but it was at the core a different way of living with them? And that has shaped, as I said, my view on Scripture. I've told you in the past, or we've told you in the past, that one of the things that make the remnant different in the margins is the way that we view our relationships. We are pure in our relationships. Not every relationship that we have is about sex or leads to sex. And the one that we do have that involves that is called marriage and it's confined to that. Another one of the ways in which we're different is that when we're in conflict, we do not retaliate. We don't strike back. We don't look to even the score. We have civil, peaceful, quiet lives. Another way that I express my marginalization is my hold of integrity. I don't bend the truth or stretch the truth. I don't live in two lives, the one that you see and then my own life over here, that what I am in private is what I am in public. I have one life, not two. And I'm telling you today that one of the things that marks us on the margin is the way that we handle stuff. We live in a culture of need. We are being trained by our culture that there is always one more thing that we need. We are bombarded with advertisements every day. You'll see more than 15,000 advertisements by this time next Sunday. Whether you see it on television or on some website or on our cluttered bypass, that have as many billboards as vehicles. Buy this. Go here. Use this. I watched one basketball game. There were over 300 advertisements in one basketball game. Dude, I love sports. But that is too high a price to pay. So now we just record it and skip through them. So if the game's on, don't text me or call me and say, hey, how about those lions? I'm behind you in time. I'm just saying. We are bombarded with advertisements. It, it used to be that all we needed was love, said Os Guinness, but now all we love is need. Because it tells us what we don't have and should have. And so we go out and borrow money to get it. 93% of women 18 to 25 years old say their favorite pastime is shopping. 90, now you say, well, what's wrong with that? I'm not criticizing. I'm just saying in other countries that is not the favorite pastime. You understand, that is shaped by culture. I'm not saying it's good or bad. It is because of the culture that we live in. Most of the debt right now is not in the hands of the wealthy, but in the hands of those in the lower 20 or 30%. We are more consumed today with retirement than ever before. 
in 2007, on the eve of our own Great Depression, I was in Colorado, and I was reading a book. I picked up a book called The Number, and you know what this is, don't you? It's what is the number that you need to retire on. What will you have to have when you retire so you'll be okay for the rest of your life? I thought I was okay (laughs) until I read it. I discovered that one out of four people my age, only one out of four, have more than $100,000 in investments, and one out of three have less than $50,000 in investments at my age. Now, my age is none of your business, but I am in the fourth quarter. (laughs) Do you see it? And so Lee Eisenberg, who did the research on this, went to Wall Street and talked to people who are obsessed with the number. He said, after the end of all these conversations, what I discovered was three things. One is every one of them knows to the last digit what their number is. Two is that they are always retiring that number and raising it a few years later. (laughs) Used to be five million, one of them said. Then it used to be 10 million. And when he asked him today, he said, my number is screw you money. It's the amount of money I need to walk away at retirement and say, screw you to the rest of society. And this this remarkable that a person sees retirement as leaving community. And he sees money as the way to get there. When in fact, if there is no community, nobody's safe, and neither is there money. And the third thing, he said, is that even when they hit the number, they don't quit. They can't. There is another way. Can I tell you? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not. The Lord is my shepherd. I have enough. On the eve of their of their own. journey in out of Egypt stay with me you'll see where I'm going I hope God was teaching the Israelites something different about their possessions stay with me you see Israel was in their own great depression Only they called it Egypt. They called it bondage, captivity. They were in Egypt. And it started out really good. They lived in the land of Goshen. It was the best land ever. But then there arose a Pharaoh who knew not Joseph. And soon after that, he rounded up the Jews and sent them off to the brickyard. And when they got to the brickyard, all of the rules changed. You worked every day, seven days a week. And you ate according to how well you worked. And so even in the brickyard, there is something like a pecking order. And in this, Israel learned you were on your own. 
There is no one outside of you that can help you. You are only as good, you are only as nourished and fed as you are strong and able to do something. But the problem is, when you get old and tired or sick, and you can't perform anymore, you start losing your favor with the market or with Pharaoh, and you start worrying about your future. And so you work even harder, and you tell yourself, if Pharaoh changes his mind tomorrow because anything can happen, then at least we'll have enough. We'll have stored up enough. See, what I'm telling you is, when they were in captivity, they had Ruby's mentality. And it's not because they were bad people. It's because the power of culture shapes the way we think about possessions. No one sat them down and said, Here, forget God. Be greedy. <laughs> it's never like this. They just said, You're on your own. So you have to work hard. You have to get a degree. You have to be ambitious. You have to be clever. And the money that you make will be yours. But you better prepare because anything can happen. And when it does, you need to be ready. So the more you have, the better you are. That's Egypt. And then God performed an exodus. And when God performed an exodus, He did not simply take His people out of bondage to Egypt. He was teaching them an entirely new economy. He was teaching them a different way to think about stuff. So in Egypt, they learned, you are on your own, but... Just before they got to the Red Sea, the Lord said to them, You must be still, and the Lord your God will fight for you. Can you imagine how many troubles in our lives go away if we could just buy that one verse that I am not my own provider? God will fight for me. I need only be still, not busier and busier. While they were coming out of Egypt, he gave them manna because he was trying to prove them to him that not only were they not their own provider, but what they had today did not come from their own hands. And so it wasn't theirs. You will wake up in the morning and you will eat it. And you will get ready to go to bed tonight. And when you do, wait, there will be this awkward moment where you've had enough for the day, but you don't know what's coming tomorrow. So it's about 7, 8 o'clock at night. The camp is quiet and you're sitting in your tent asking yourself, well, it was a pretty good year. It was a pretty good day. But will there be more tomorrow? You don't know. He said there would, but what if there won't? So you store it. Just in case. And when you do, it rots. Now, I'm not up here suggesting 
that the manna from heaven is an entirely whole economic system. But I do believe that what God was doing was trying to detox his people from the old economy. He was trying to say there is another way to live and it's free. It's liberating. It's whole. It has meaning and there is purpose to the work of your hands. But you are not responsible for the way everything ends. And so instead of working themselves to a frenzy, it was in the exodus that God gave them a Sabbath. It's an entirely different way to think about work and the things that work provides. It was a shift from a mindset of need to a mindset of abundance. I want you to think about that a moment. Think about that. Which which of these minds is more like yours? Jesus said that a man cannot serve two masters. He said this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said you will either love the one and hate the other or you will despise the one and cling to the other. But you cannot serve God and stuff. Not money. Hardly anybody had money. It was stuff. You cannot serve God and stuff. Ruby didn't hate either one, and neither do I. Ruby loved God to the bottom of her heart, but she also loved stuff. And it occurs to me that this is exactly where most of us are. There are two conflicting powers, said Jesus. One of them must be dominant, and the other will be subdominant. So you will either spend your life pursuing God and money will be a problem. Because even if you have it, it will create a tension in your life that you have to manage. Or it will undermine your love of God. Or you will spend your life pursuing money and then God will be a problem. You'll come to church full of stuff and then some big ugly bald guy will talk about generosity. And it's going to feel like God is trying to get your stuff. So there will be a dominant and a subdominant. You will either use God to get more stuff or you will use stuff to serve your God. But you cannot serve them both at the same time. You are all of the time either moving away from one and headed toward the other or abandoning the other and clinging to the one. I think that's what I heard him say. And the difference 
between the people on the margin and the ones in the center is that the ones on the margin love their God. And so even when they have stuff, they're not looking to sanctify it by talking to God. They're looking to use it as a way to serve that God. It's a totally different mind. I told you at the beginning, it isn't about how much we possess. I can't tell you this much and no more. That's a sliding scale, and you have the right to determine that all by yourselves in accordance with God. But I can tell you, there is a time when you've had enough. In American church, we have enough. How do we get there? Leviticus, um, Leviticus 19 offers some really, really, I think, practical things. Could you call Leviticus 19 up so I can, 19, 9, and 10? When you reap the harvest of your land, don't reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Don't go over the vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. And when an alien lives in your land, don't mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated, wow, as one of your native-born. Holy cow, am I reading that right? Love him as you love yourself. For remember, you were aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Remember, when you were in Egypt, I taught you a different economy. I taught you a different economy. God is your provider. Therefore, everything you have is His, not yours. He owns it. You don't have to worry about what might happen five or ten years from now because God will take care of you, not you. So therefore, it is what you give and not what you have that makes you better off. Yeah, are you still with me? I hear simple steps here. Let me cover them quickly and then I want us to close in the right way. One of the things I hear him calling for is contentment. My problem with, with my field, you guys, is that um, I start out giving the margins to the poor and living off the center, but then the older I get, the more I expand the center. 
So the margin that the poor gets gets smaller and smaller over time because I find other needs for stuff in the center. And so uh, I'm talking to some people, and, and this is some of the ideas that we're talking about. One of them is that when I am young, when I am, say, 20 or 30s, that's young, <laughs> um, maybe I should start setting the amount of money that we need to live on and stopping there. Rather than waiting for the next pay raise to decide what can we afford now, honey, I would simply say, what do we need to live on? And then let's leave the margins for the poor and the alien and the vulnerable. What usually happens, as I say, is that our lifestyle expands as our pay raise increases. But if you're in a season right now where you're not making a ton of money, that could be a wonderful gift to you. So maybe we just decide what it is we need to live on, and then we start leaving the margins go. So the question then is not, how much do you want to give to the poor this year? The question is, how much do you need to live on this year? Give the rest away. You may save some for retirement, a little. You may save some for savings. That's just wise. But we may not expand our lifestyle in order to eat up our raises. Still with me? You thought go to your room was hard. The second thing I hear is this discipline of giving. Generosity, I hear, is not so much an impulse or a sympathy as it is a discipline. Every time there's a harvest, you will cut aside what you don't need and you will give it to the poor. So now the question that I'm asking myself is, what have I produced that is more than I need. Some of you have money and some of you have ideas. But if intellectual capital were money, then this is a call to be as generous with your intellectual capital as you want the rich person to be with his money, or with your power, or with your access to power. So what am I producing that I no longer need? Because I have enough. The Lord is my shepherd. And then I give the margin away. Last is in the area of hospitality. What I'm learning about poverty is that money won't fix it. I know you all know this, but it never fixes it. What we have in Grant County are more than 100 organizations who help the poor. And yet, at the same time, we have about the second highest stress index in the state of Indiana as far as the poor. So we have 22 food banks in the city of Marion alone, almost none of which 
have much of a thorough intake at all. I'm telling you, I could get in line and get free food. And yet with 22 food banks in Marion, we have the highest poverty rate for children in the entire state of Indiana. The problem with poverty is seldom money. Poverty is a way of living. To be poor is to lack connections. It is to lack marketable skills that will help you live free lives. It is to lack role models who consistently live out virtuous lives before you and before your children. It is to lack a spiritual depth and to be frenetic and to pursue materialism and to think that the next purchase will always be the thing that will make you happy. That is what makes you poor. So, if the problem with poverty isn't money, then maybe the solution isn't money. Maybe it's relationships. What Leviticus 19 says is when you have an alien living among you, treat him like you would your own son. Love him like you love yourself. Generosity is not simply an amount of money. It's a way of treating people. 